Welcome to the Grace Baptist Sermon Podcast. Pastor Andy Oliver is our Bible teacher and expositor. Today's message is The Greatness of God in Nehemiah 9. Please take your Bibles and turn to Nehemiah chapter 9. Nehemiah chapter 9. The Bible is a book of promises. Promises that God made to men. And some promises that men have made to God. Now there's a, there's a huge, huge contrast between these two. God always keeps His promises. But people very seldom seem to be able to keep theirs. Now, I get to ask this question, why did God do this? Why did God do this? Why did God allow this? This kind of thing. Uh, let's, let's back up a, a step or two and recognize the fact that God owes us absolutely nothing. Any obligation of is of his own making. And if God makes a promise, therefore he must keep it. But he's under, under no compulsion to make the promise in the first place. There's no obligation outside of himself. God is accountable to no one but himself. Now, humanity, people, are always wanting, always trying, endeavoring to make promises. And the promises usually are for our own benefit. Let's give a give an example here. Let's say uh, we might sign a promissory note so that we get a loan, bank loan, buying a house, car, whatever the case may be. Promises are made so that we can gain a, a privilege, a benefit. As children, some of you remember this, uh, we used to make the most convoluted oaths to make our to make our credibility good. I swear on such and such and such and such, and and you know you go through various motions and special handshakes and all this other stuff. And when we get we become adults, nothing's any different. The complexity that is required in legal documents is an indicator of how difficult it is to get someone to to simply keep their word. We have all these different things that that. that Forced people to, okay, whenever you gotta deal with all these little contingencies, all these details, to make sure that no one is gonna slip through and get away with lying. Because we don't naturally keep our words. Now in our text, after several weeks of scripture reading and exposition, as we saw last time, an awakening occurred among the people. And also as we saw last time, there was repentance, there was confession of sin. This is followed by an extended prayer. This is what we're going to be looking at this week and next time. Uh, an extended prayer that makes up most of the rest of Nehemiah. By the way, this is the longest formal prayer in the Bible. It is a review of God's dealings, and in particular, God's dealings with Israel. We begin with the, the goodness of God, the greatness of God, and His promises. And this is followed by the promises of Israel. Here's the, here's the consistency of Israel. They are consistently inconsistent in keeping their word. And as you read through your Old Testament, you start with Exodus and you read through to Malachi. And what you have is a record of Israel's failure to keep their promises that they made to God. You say, boy, that was awful of Israel. Boy, they couldn't keep their word. All oh, this is awful. Understand the New Testament, we talked about this a little bit in Sunday school. Uh, the New Testament was written over a period altogether of about 50 or 60 years. And all you have to do is read 
We've got several incidents in the book of Acts. We have a number of things in the epistles. Just read Corinthians. Uh, the problems that the church has had. And if you read church history, oh my word, it is one long disaster with occasional hiccups of blessing and revival. But those are by far the exceptions. The vast majority of church history as well as Jewish history in the Old Testament is one of, of never any disaster of a failure to, to simply obey the, the truth that God has given them. To obey God and to keep the promise. Israel said, all that the Lord has said, we will do. They said that before Moses went up and got the Ten Commandments. And then after he came back down and gave them to the children of Israel, they said, all the Lord has said, we will do. And Moses says, all right, I'm going to be back in a month, and you guys hold the fort. And he goes up, and we have the whole golden calf thing. And it doesn't stop there. It's just this ongoing thing. And God is gracious and God is merciful. Aren't we glad that God keeps his word whether we do or not? Now we're going to look at a couple of things here. One of the things that I, I find interesting, we, we, we have a tendency, Christianity has a tendency, Christendom has a tendency to want to bypass certain truths that they find uncomfortable. They want to bypass certain truths that they find uh, in conflict with what the world thinks and believes. And one of those is that God is the creator. Now, if you were to say, what, what book of the Bible is attacked by unbelievers the most? From, from the whole, we got 66 books in the Bible. Which book of the Bible is attacked by unbelievers the most? Hands down, it is Genesis. Why? Because they don't like those, those, those first nine chapters at all. Dealing with the, 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 uh, the original creation and then the flood, they don't like that. And uh, part of it has to do with the fact that if you are looking at how to explain what is. Now, we read in Psalm 19, you get the same thing in Romans chapter 1. Creation demands a creator. You have to have an explanation for what is. How did it get here? Where did this come from? And if you want to go back, where did all this matter and energy come from? It had to come from someplace. And universally, across all cultures and so on, it is understood that God did this. Or a God, if you want to step outside of Christendom. Creation demands a creator. And if we are going to come up with an idea of how we can explain what is, we have four options. And there's only four. Either a creator made it. Number two... Over a period of processes and time and so on, it came into being as it is now, but that matter and energy are eternal, have always been. Three, it isn't really here. And number four, it's always been here just like it is. We just have the the idea or the, the phantom idea that somehow things change over time. Those are your four options. All right. We can scratch these two. Unless you are still thinking that you're dreaming and, and this is all just a figment of your imagination. By the way, there are people that, that hold that as their philosophy. They don't live that way because they still eat, drink, sleep, and so on. Got two options. There's either a creator or there isn't a creator. If there's a creator, he is an all-powerful being that brought this into existence and he is, he is beyond the scope of our imagination as far as his power and ability is concerned. If we scratch that idea, but by the way, which requires a whole lot more faith, then we're dealing with something that has existed forever, 
And somehow or another, we have this great complexity that is contrary to the laws of physics. We will, we will expand on that a little bit later. Let's, let's get into our text. I don't want to jump the gun too much. It says in verse 5, and we're going to have some names here, the Levites, Jeshua and Cadmiel, Bani, get my glasses, Hashabniah, Sherebiah, Hadijah, Shebaniah, and Pethahiah. I have three cousins by those names. <laughs> said, stand up and bless the Lord your God forever and ever. Let's pause for just a moment there. That's a, that's a fascinating thing. I was mentioning this to my wife last night. There's little things that we see in the scripture all the time that are mentioned just in passing. But there's a lot of neat stuff there. There's a lot of really cool stuff there. Some great truth that we often just pass over. It says we are to bless, stand and bless the Lord our God forever and ever. Two things. The God will be blessed and praised forever and ever. And number two, you and I will be doing it. That means that God is eternal, and that also means that we are too. Alright? So God is eternal, and we are too. We will be honoring, praising our God for all eternity. It also says, And blessed be your glorious name, which is exalted above all blessing and praise. Thou, even thou, art Lord alone. There is only one God. If you were to go back and look at Romans chapter 1, you will find that the understanding that there's only one God is the original idea, because this is what God gave man. Man was originally in fellowship with the one God, and then man rebelled. And after the flood and so on, we have the, the proliferation of gods, that people made gods in our own image. We designated different things to different gods. Now, if you believe in an original creation... Either you had a, a just an outrageous uh, harmony among the, the gods that they were able to put this together, or there's, there can only be one God. And the scripture makes it very clear that there is only one God. I could cite several passages. We're going to look at Isaiah chapter 44 and verse 8. It says, is there a God beside me? The Lord says, yea, there is no God. I know not any. There's only one God. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. There is one God. And he is the creator. Look at verse 6. Thou, even thou, art Lord alone. Thou hast made heaven, the heaven of heavens, with all their hosts, the earth and all things that are in there, the seas and all that are therein, and thou preservest them all, and the host of heaven worshipeth thee. God made it all. We have, and by the way, this is not just in Genesis, this is not just here. Over and over and over again, throughout the scripture, when they want to talk about how great God is, there's two things that they mention. One is creation, and the other one's the Exodus. We'll be looking at the Exodus next time. But they talk about original creation. God made everything. He is the creator. We are not dealing with random chance. If you remove God from the equation... If you hold that matter and energy are eternal, that everything that exists came about by, by random chance. There is no organization, there is no thought behind this, that it's just sort of random things that just, just happened. First and second law of thermodynamics, the idea of entropy, prevent this from happening. You have a, uh, 
a homestead, you have a, a farm, you have a house, you have outbuildings, you have a barn, you have fields, you have fences, you have all these different things. And at one point in time, it was beautiful and well-maintained and pristine. And then people stopped maintaining it. Now, what happens when people take their hands off of a situation like that? You've seen this before. The paint begins to flake. The fields begin to grow up with weeds and pretty soon trees. The uh, the buildings begin to fall in and collapse. Any equipment, any vehicles that are out there begin to rust. Some of you have seen the picture of, of a of a place where a car used to be. <laughs> and you can see the, the rectangular outline of a big, huge pile of rust with a few chunks of, of the biggest pieces of iron still left. Over a period of time, it all goes back to the soil. It requires somebody to maintain it. And in order for there to be order, you have to have somebody with an idea and a plan to put it together. The idea of spontaneity. That some, and that we went from simplest to most complex takes a huge amount of faith. Much more faith than believing that there's a God. I want to deal with two basic ideas that, that are, uh, by the way, I used to be on the other side of this. I used to be the devout evolutionist. So here, here, here I'll give you two thoughts. Number one, we're going to deal with one called irreducible complexity. And the other one is going to be dealing with the language of, of chromosomes and so forth. Irreducible complexity. My friend Greg is out of town this week, but my friend Greg is a, is a mechanic. And you could take your car to Greg, and he could take something off of the car, and the car would still run. Take another thing off the car, car still run. And you could keep taking things off of this car until it got to the point where if you remove one more component, it won't work. When you get to that level, you still have a very complex piece of machinery. Every cell in your body is, for the most part, already at irreducible complexity. It doesn't have any extra stuff. It's got everything it needs, but it doesn't have any extras. And the cells of your body, each cell, not just the the, the whole together, but each cell is far more complicated than any automobile you've ever seen. Well, could I have a partial cell? Because if we're dealing with life, life is based on the cell. I have to have a cell to start with. The idea of having a a cell spontaneously arise out of primordial soup is like having an explosion in a scrapyard and developing a 747. It's not statistically possible. Is it theoretically? Could could, could that happen? No. No. And have everything working? It just, it doesn't happen. A protein is an outrageously long molecule that can't exist outside of a cell. What makes proteins? Cells make proteins. Cells are made out of what? Proteins. What came first, the chicken or the egg? You have to have them both at the same time. Where'd they come from? God made it! It does not spontaneously arise. It's not statistically possible. And then to have it be able to fix and repair itself and reproduce. Irreducible complexity. The next one is that your DNA is a computer program. 
We've heard with binary, you have quadrinary with, uh, with DNA. You have four different things and how they all different, all they connect determines whether you have dark hair or blonde hair, blue eyes, brown eyes, all those different things. And also whether or not you have five fingers or two fingers or whatever the case may be. Everything about you is in that very complex computer program. There are, there's no junk DNA. They have ruled that out. Everything there is needful. And you have a computer program that is readable. It's in a language that is readable. And it determines what you look like and everything else and how everything works together. And of course, this huge long computer program that is readable and that reproduces itself every time a a cell divides was just by random chance. (laughs) DNA can't exist outside of a cell. It is made by a cell and yet it determines the makeup of the cell. And you also have several different components of DNA in each cell. It is an extremely complicated piece of equipment. And your body is made up of millions and millions and millions of these that are all specifically designed for specific purposes. The different cells in different parts of your body do different things. When they go haywire, that's when we have disease and stuff. When everything's working, we are a fine-tuned piece of equipment designed by God. And there is no extraneous material here. We don't have extras that you can order. It comes, it comes with what we got. And then it mentions that God sustains. God makes this thing work. Just as I mentioned the the scenario of a farm that has to be maintained, God has to maintain his creation. God sustains his creation. Because if you walk away, it falls into decay. God keeps it going. God keeps it running. This is the whole thing. If if there was no God and matter and energy are eternal, then what we would have, everything goes from most complex to least complex. This is true as far as the complexity of molecules are concerned. This is as far as everything. And if matter and energy and everything, and energy goes from, from uh, most accessible to least accessible. You burn a log, it comes, becomes ashes. Very hard to reconstruct that. It takes years. Energy. Sunlight, the growth of, of cells and so on to recreate that. It takes a lot of energy to go back to that. If time and energy are eternal, we would simply have a universe of random particles in open space. There would be no complexity. Everything would be break, broken down to its simplest forms. And yet God made it all. God made this great complexity. God created the the uh, the animal and the, and the plants and so on with the equipment they need, and He gave them the instincts to operate at operate that. Beavers have webbed feet and chisel like teeth that keep growing, and He put in their little beaver minds the ability to make dams and lodges and so on. That they have the equipment as well as the know how to do it. And I could, we could go on about spiders and their webs. All these different things that God has created the mechanism as well as the, the instinct to, to use what God, he has equipped them to do. It is absolutely astounding what God has done. And so when we talk about the greatness of God, the power of God, the magnificence of God, and the fact that he is worthy of our worship, he is the creator. And it is very difficult for us to wrap our heads around the greatness of God. 
Most of us, I suppose, have some project or projects we're working on. We're fixing something. We're repairing something. We're building something. Building birdhouses, restoring a car, painting a house. And it becomes this long, drawn-out process because it's complicated and it's hard and it takes time. And we're just making some little gizmo. Fixing something. God created everything there is out of nothing. He made the matter and the energy to begin with. He made it all out of nothing in six days. And he sustains it all. And that means not just what we see here on this earth, but everything you can look at in a telescope as far as the eye can see and beyond. God made it all. He knows it all. He knows how many pieces, how many grains of, of he knows how many atoms make up Pluto. Okay, he, he knows all these things. There is nothing that God does not know. He made it all. He sustains it all. And so we talk about the greatness of God. God is worthy of our worship. The insanity of humanity is that we want to be our own God as if we somehow are on parity with the God who is. And people who want to remove God are grasping at straws to remove and eliminate accountability. Because if I am part of God's creation, ultimately I am answerable to the God who is. And, and people don't like that idea. And as it is appointed unto men once to die, after this the judgment. I will stand before my creator and give account of myself. But I, but I don't like that. Doesn't change the outcome. But I don't like God's rules. That doesn't change anything. God is the judge. And God in his grace and his mercy provided a savior. So that I can be reconciled to my creator in my rebellion, my sin. I can be reconciled to my creator, be his child, and have a, an inheritance in the hereafter that is better than the original creation. God gives life to all. We see that in the end of verse 6. I can make something, but I can't give it life. I can make some little robot, I suppose, put some batteries in it and make it move, but I'm not giving it life. God alone gives life. And all the angels worship him because he is worthy. None other is worthy. And the angels have been worshiping the Lord since creation. We see from Job chapter 38 and verse 7. God is great because he's the creator, but that is not the only reason he is great, and that's not the only reason he is worthy of worship. We're going to be looking at several other things. One more here this morning. Let's look at verse 7. Thou art the Lord, the God, which didst choose Abram, and brought us him forth out of Ur the Chaldees, and gavest him the name of Abraham. Okay, pause for a moment. Ur the Chaldees was a, a large city, not too far, it would be right on the border of what is now Kuwait, was on the Euphrates River. It's an ancient city. They worshipped the god, ironically in English, uh, the name is Sin. It's a moon god. And we know from some other places in the scripture that Abram was a pagan before God called him. He worshipped this moon god. And God called him and God made him a promise. I want you to go to Genesis chapter 12. We'll look at the promise. That promise was uh, reiterated a bunch of times as well as uh, made uh, one or two expansions on it. But God made a promise. It wasn't because Abraham said or did anything. God made a promise. In Genesis chapter 12, beginning at verse 1, it says, Now the Lord has said unto Abram, Get thee out of thy country. 
from thy kindred, from thy father's house, unto a land that I will show thee. And I will make of thee a great nation, and I will bless thee, and make thy name great, and thou shalt be a blessing. And I will bless them that bless thee, curse him that curseth thee, and in thee shall all families of the earth be blessed. In Genesis chapter 15 and verse 7, we have the addition of the promised land, which is why it's still called the promised land. Because God made a promise. His original name was Abram, which means exalted father. At the age of 87, I think it was, God changed his name to Abraham, which means father of a multitude. Because God made a promise that your children, your descendants, will be like the sand by the seashore, an innumerable multitude. And when God called him out of Ur of the Chaldees, he was 75 years old and had no children. And yet the Jewish people and a number of other ethnic groups around the world today are descendants of this man. God made a promise. And even though it wasn't likely, even though it was not humanly feasible, God brought it about. His wife bore a son at the age of 90 because God made a promise. So that's not possible. Let's go back a few verses. Remember, God made everything in six days. He can he can cause a 90-year-old woman to have a child. And so God called this man. Joshua chapter 24, verse 2 indicates that he was a, a pagan before this, not a worshiper of the true God. There were those who lived at the same time that were of the remnant that knew the truth. And remember, everybody that came off the ark knew the truth. And the people who came off the ark, the people, by the way, they were genetically perfect at original creation. That's why they lived so long. If you look at the uh, the folks that came off the ark, their lifespans declined over the first probably five or six generations. Until they got to roughly where we are today. But Shem, the, the son of of Noah, lived to be over 700 years old. Can you imagine? Christopher Columbus had, wasn't here 700 years ago. And you would have had a guy that you could go to. Abraham and, and Shem have some overlap. Abraham could have gone and seen this really, really, really old guy. And don't think of him as this really, really, really decrepit guy because he aged very slowly. So he's actually probably in pretty good shape. Probably better than Abraham was. And you could have gotten the story that there were still people that understood the truth that there was one God and all the things that had happened prior to that. Job was not an Israelite. Job was probably a, 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 close to being a contemporary of Abraham. And we deal the same thing with Melchizedek and some others that were people alive at that time who were a remnant of people that believed and held the truth. But God made a promise. We refer to this as the Abrahamic covenant. A blessing to those that will bless, a curse on those who will curse. A multitude of descendants, the promise of the land, mentioned there in, I'm sorry, in Genesis chapter 13, verses 14 through 15. And a blessing on all the nations that will, uh, that, that through him, a blessing will come. And that would be because, that would be because if you go back to, uh, the New Testament, go to the, go ahead to the New Testament, you'll find out when we read the genealogy of Jesus, we'll find out that he's a descendant of David, who was a descendant of Israel, who was the grandson of Abraham. Abraham is the, the forebear of Jesus. And because of Jesus, because he is the Savior, and he has his people all over the world. There's not a nation on earth that don't have, doesn't have uh, those who have trusted Christ. All peoples, all nations of the earth, in, to some extent, are blessed in Jesus Christ through, because ultimately of Abraham. Two parts are mentioned here as far as the blessing to Abraham. One is the, he's the, he'll be the father of a multitude. That's what Abraham means. 
and then the land. When Abraham was in the land, as you read back in Genesis, the record of his life and so on, he was a wandering shepherd. Now, granted, he had a large household, he had a lot of people working for him and stuff, but he lived in a tent. And he moved around from place to place. Every so many years, he would, he would shift his location. The only piece of real estate he owned was a field he bought that had a cave at the end of it so he could bury his wife when she died. A burying place for his, his family. That's the only thing he bought, the only piece of land. Other than that, he was a foreigner, he was a wanderer, he was a what we call a pilgrim. But God promised. He said, look to the north, the south, the east, and the west. And all the land that you see, I will give to you and to your descendants. And Abraham died, very old guy, 175, and he didn't receive the inheritance of that land looking to the, get my bearings, the north, the south, the east, and the west. But God promised that he would. Did God break his promise? In Daniel chapter 12 and verse 13, we have a long section, this is right toward the end of the book of Daniel. And we have three chapters. Chapters uh, 10, 11, and 12 are one long prophecy in the book of Daniel. And Daniel is left perplexed at the end of all this revelation. He didn't understand a great deal of it. He wanted more answers. And here's what he was told in Genesis, in uh, Daniel chapter 12 and verse 13. But go thy way till the end be. For thou shalt rest and stand in thy lot at the end of days. Daniel was in his 80s when he was told this. He was an old guy. You and he never, ever, his whole life since he was a young teenager, had been in this promised land. He had been, he had been deported to Babylon. That's where he spent the rest of his days. But you will stand in your appointed lot in the land of Israel, that land of promise that God had promised to Abraham, your forebear. You will stand in that. What does that mean? See, we get these little things that, that demand something else. This demands a resurrection. Daniel died in Babylon. This demands a resurrection. If God is going to keep his word, it demands a resurrection. If Abraham is going to inherit the land... It demands a resurrection. And this is all alluded to, again, uh, alluded to again in the book of Hebrews, chapter 11. That there will be something in the future for them and us. And that is combined together again in the, in the book of Hebrews. That what was promised to them is also promised to an extent to us, and we will all inherit it together when the Lord returns and sets up the kingdom. In Genesis chapter 15 and verse 6, by the way, how do we get this? How do we get in on this deal? This is such a deal. How do I get in on this? Same way Abraham did. In Genesis chapter 15 and verse 6, it said, And he believed in the Lord, and he, the Lord, counted it to him for righteousness. I don't earn it because I can't. I don't get it by being good because I'm not. I don't get it by being faithful because I'm not. I get it by trusting the Lord, and He gives it to me as a gift because He is great and He is able, and I am miserable and unworthy and unable, and God rescues me. We talk about that He saved me, He rescues me. It's the same idea. So we gather together. These people here in chapter 9, they gather together to worship the Lord. 
He is worthy of our praise for all eternity because of who he is. He is the creator God. But when we get just a, just a little glimpse of how great God is, and then we get a little glimpse of what he's done and what he will do for us, the promises he has made that he must keep because he's God, is he worthy of our worship? Is he indeed worthy of our, our praise? Absolutely. He has given us something that is beyond our comprehension to even it, just to wrap our heads around as far as how great and wonderful it is. And it's something we don't deserve, we are utterly unworthy of. How is this possible? It's all through Jesus Christ. He paid our debt on the cross that we might become God's children. And so God is worthy of our praise, and he is worthy of our worship. The God who is, is a great God. A powerful and mighty God who is worthy of our worship and praise. 1 John 4.19 says we love him because he, he first loved us. We ought to love him because he is simply worthy. But our love is usually a response to what we have received. He made a promise of salvation to all who have put their faith and trust in the Lord Jesus Christ. Preached on this yesterday at the, at the memorial service. John 3.16, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whosoever believeth in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. How do I get this? By faith. I believe on him. I put my trust in him. And God keeps his word. That's a promise. That is a promise applying to you and me. That if I believe, I'll have everlasting life. God keeps his word. Now, people don't. But I'm thankful that the promise doesn't depend on my faithfulness, but rather on the faithfulness of God. Praise the Lord. He is gracious and merciful. He is great and he is worthy. Heavenly Father, thank you. May we gain just an inkling of an idea of how great you are. And we can deal with the, the magnitude of your power. But Father, you're not an impersonable, an impersonal force. You are a person who loves us and provided Christ that he might, that you might have a relationship with us, that we might be reconciled to our creator. And so Father, thank you for the salvation that Christ paid for. Thank you that you, through Christ, make us your children. And Lord, if there's somebody today that has not received this great gift, has not received the the benefit of the adoption by God, may today be that day of salvation. We pray for Christ's sake. Amen. Thank you for listening to the Grace Baptist Sermon Podcast. If you'd like to know more about faith in Jesus Christ or more about our ministry, please visit www.gracebaptistpuallop.org. Until next time, may you walk worthy of the Lord.